Welcome to Chasing Compliance, the global regulatory podcast, where we discuss all aspects of medical device and pharmaceutical regulatory and clinical strategy from bench to bedside. This is part one of a two-part series on site selection and evaluation and how to accelerate the process of identifying sites and evaluating sites. Joining us today for the discussion is Julie Scheide and Linda Peterson. Linda walks us through how teams from the sponsor or clinical research organization known as CROs approach site selection. So what I'm typically looking for is a team that has the necessary time, uh, as well as experience and expertise, as well as the location, as I mentioned previously, where the particular disease state might have the highest prevalence so that the site can be successful in their enrollment. And then uh, do they have the right equipment and facilities? Conversely, Julie provides her thoughts and recommendations regarding site selection from the site's perspective. First things we will ask ourselves or ask an identified team is, does the research answer an important question? And we would like to find out if the community will support the research as far as the benefits and the risk ratio is concerned. In part one, we discuss the site selection process, what sponsors or CROs are looking for in a site, what sites are looking for in a study, how both parties can accelerate the process, and of course, the importance of communication and teamwork. Bit more about our guests. Linda Peterson is a Vice President of Clinical Development at Global. Linda has over two decades of experience in clinical research and leading site selection and evaluation from the sponsor or CRO side. Julie Scheide is a nurse and a certified clinical research professional or CCRP. Julie has over a decade of clinical research experience, including working with CROs and sponsors through the site selection and evaluation process. Without further ado, let's talk to Linda and Julie. Linda, Julie, thank you guys so much for coming on Chasing Compliance today. Linda, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for having me. And Julie, thanks for taking time out of your really busy schedule to join us and talk about site selection. Happy to be here. Let's start from a pretty high level. This podcast is intended for those who understand clinical research and clinical trial management to a large degree. But for all those out there, can you give us a really brief introduction on what site selection and site validation are and what they are in the context of clinical trials? And Jamie, I'll start. Generally, it's the process of picking qualified sites that can help you run your clinical trials. And that being said, the sites we select will sign up or enroll the patients, and we actually term those subjects, perform the required procedures at the site, enter the data into the trial's database, and monitor the safety of those subjects throughout the trial. So how do you recommend people start the site selection process? And broadly, what is this process? Jamie, again, I'll start off a little bit and then I'll have Julie jump in. I'll speak from the sponsor or CRO perspective and then I'll allow Julie to speak from the site perspective. So you mentioned starting the site selection process and we are typically going to look at sites that either we know or we've been in contact with first. However, sometimes our sponsor clients may already have some sites they'd like us to take a look at. And after that, we do a dive into locations based on the sponsor requirements or our knowledge of the landscape around the type of trial we'll be running. We'll be looking at sites that have expertise within the therapeutic area, as well as whether they have experience with the types of trials we're running. And for example, that would be like the phase or the design, and um, like the design, whether it's a blinded or other type of trial, as well as other criteria we might be looking at. It does help to match sites with previous good performance and experience. So we'll be asking a lot of questions up front to ensure a good fit for what we're looking at. Initially, we'll have a phone call to assess interest. 
Then we typically send out what we call a feasibility questionnaire. We take all the information we gather and see if their profile is a good fit. So once we select sites that seem to be a good fit, we'll need to take a look at their facilities and equipment that they have in place and make sure that they have or can easily obtain uh, what they need to be successful for our trial. So with the environment we're in now, we can mostly do this step virtually with a video tour. However, sometimes we still might need to go out and take a look at the site if either the sponsor might require that or if we haven't been able to successfully tour their facility virtually. Okay, Julie, do you want to speak from the site perspective? Yes, thank you. Studies that come to the site that I'm currently working on will oftentimes come through places like CenterWatch. We could get studies through Facebook, Internet. A physician will refer. Sponsors who we've worked with before and know that we have performed well will contact us again. And everything that Linda mentioned as far as what the sponsor is looking for, it's very important for a site to have a vetting process. And we should, you should know your site very well, have a very realistic evaluation of the site, and already know that a sponsor or CRO is going to be asking those questions and have those things prepared ahead of time. How do you put together site feasibility questionnaire, Linda? Ah. Well, we take a look at the protocol typically or, you know, the requirements for whatever study or trial we're, we're looking to run. And we'll take a look at what we need for the site to be able to perform the best, like the type of equipment, the type of area of expertise, the therapeutic area, you know, their experience, um, you know, historically, maybe they can tell us about some of the trials that they've run that are very similar uh, in, in regards to what we're looking at. So we kind of take a lot of that type of information. We've put it into a little questionnaire and then we pop it out to the sites. How do you choose which sites to select and to start the selection and validation process? Would you recommend anything for anybody who's looking at starting a study and overwhelmed right now with selecting sites? Yeah, we, we typically kind of look at the, um, number one, we'll look at the, the location. Uh, typically, because we want to see, especially if it's a particular disease state, we're going to be looking at areas where that is the most prevalent. So that way we know that the sites can successfully enroll because there's no sense in getting a site up and going if they really don't have the patient population, um, you know, in that particular area. So we're going to be looking also at their experience level, like I mentioned previously, but we're also going to be looking to see if they have time to work on our project. We're uh, going to be looking whether their staff has the expertise and experience in the, the, the therapeutic area, um, the phase of development, as well as facilities or equipment necessary to be successful. Julie, do you have anything to add? I know that you work on the site side, but do you see the mechanisms through which sponsors select your site? Absolutely. And in the beginning, when you first hear about a study, you may get a study synopsis that might be two pages long. You may get 50% of the inclusion-exclusion criteria, and then your site is asked to make a decision whether they want to move forward with the studies. This is where the feasibility questionnaire is very important. Um, it will ask you a lot of questions about a particular investigator. It will ask you about the demographic, how many patients you think might meet this inclusion and exclusion criteria. It's going to ask you about your IRB process, how long it takes you to move through the process. It's difficult sometimes to answer feasibility questions without a full protocol, but it's doable. And we get them done and turn them around as quickly as we can. And that gives us the ability to get additional information to move forward. 
do you have any recommendations for sponsors as far as if if they're developing the protocol in tandem with the site selection and feasibility validation process? Do you have any recommendations for information if they can't give you the entire protocol? Do you find that there are key pieces of information that are sometimes missing or that you absolutely have to have? Sometimes it's difficult, especially when you're getting into some complex studies, say uh, bacteremia studies or infectious disease studies, because they may ask questions like, how many patients receive such and such an antibiotic for this type of bacteria infection? And it's it's really difficult to drill down. So you just do the best you can. You speak to the infectious disease physicians. We have epic reports such as Slicer Dicer. So we do our best to get information and tweak it along the way as we get more of the protocol. Following on that, what are the components of site selection and vetting that you find are the slowest or most rate limiting? Um, some of the pain points that I've seen are that sites who are really busy. And a lot of times, you know, there might be sites who really have a lot of studies going on at a particular time when we reach out, but we realize that it, it'll be beneficial for both sides to have them on board. So in that case, we'd work really hard with them to try to find a way we could be creative and gain the necessary information. And, you know, sometimes what we might do is reach out and have a phone call first and uh, try to get as much information as we can. And what typically what my team would do is fill in a lot of that questionnaire before we send it out and then, you know, note those areas that we've already filled in for them and have them double check the information to make sure we have it correct. And then from my perspective, as far as the site is concerned, we try to be very positive and understand that pain points are opportunities to improve all of our processes and anticipate barriers in the future and ways we can train other staff members in case they run into some of these barriers as well or pain points. And I believe pain points can be mitigated if you have a really good vetting process for a new research protocol, because you're going to identify a lot of challenges up front. But uh, specifically, there are things that are pain points, such as um, identifying this responsible party to complete a feasibility questionnaire or the confidentiality agreement. So make sure that you have people who are going to be addressing those things, working on contracts and budgets and startup sequentially versus in parallel. If I said that correctly, it's really a good idea to work on them at the same time. So you're not completing a budget and then all of a sudden have to worry about getting a consent form done. One of the pain points too we find out is you may have an unaffiliated investigator or services that require additional contracts. If your site doesn't do MRIs, if your site doesn't do fiber scans, those different things. Getting documents signed. So does your site have a process for e-signature? And do you have SOPs to cover that? And are your systems 21 CFR Part 11 compliant? You want to look ahead of time at monitoring. And does a monitor need access to your electronic health record? And do you, again, have contracts and SOPs to cover that? You're going to be talking about the consent process. Is it written? Is it verbal? Can you use a legally authorized representative? Is it exemption from authorization because of some of the emergency studies we're doing? Is it e-consent? Is it a written consent? So all of these things can be pain points unless you identify them in the beginning. We also will sometimes have our consents and different documents looked at by our legal team or our risk management. That can tie things up. 
we have people who do Medicare coverage analysis, and this should be done at the same time so you're not slowing things up. And then other things that the sponsor is interested in, we look for space, we look for storage, we look for specialized equipment, and do we have it or do we need to get it? We also talk about blinding plans and will there be a blinding plan? Do we have people for blinding plans? And is there going to be assessments that might need inter-rater reliability and different training and different blinding for that? And lastly, is the study 24-7? Are we looking at daytime, weekend, holiday, or just Monday through Friday? So these are all things you can identify in the beginning that could be pain points and will be pain points unless you talk about them early on. Well, that's fantastic. I mean, there's a lot there potentially to unpack from both the site and the sponsor side. For example, I thought it was great that you had the suggestion of filling out a questionnaire before you even send it to the site, Linda. I mean, that's got to save time. And from the site side, being able to tell the sponsor who the responsible parties are to sign off on or fill out, say, a feasibility questionnaire or other types of document setting out the confidentiality agreement, setting out budgets and other contracts, doing that in parallel with the site selection process, establishing contracts with unaffiliated investigators. So circling back, can you as the site just publish or provide information to the sponsor right off the bat, identifying responsible parties, discussing your confidentiality agreement, telling them about your document signing procedures, asking them what the monitoring implications are, asking them what timelines are and what time requirements are, what consents are going to look like and what's involved with risk management review. Can do you often or can you just give that to the sponsor prior to doing the feasibility questionnaire? No, that, w- that would be more for the uh, pre-site study visit or the site qualification visit that these things come out. Any of these could be potential deal breakers. Mm-hmm. Right. And so where does the burden fall for if you need to contract a a outside facility investigator or like core? Does the burden fall on the sponsor or on the site typically? You know, that depends. That's a good question, Jamie. It really depends because sometimes um, on some studies we'll have a central like say reader who's going to read certain scans. And uh, if that's the case, that's going to be on the sponsor to to have that particular vendor in place. But if it's more of something more local and it's uh, the site just doesn't have that capability, then it's going to be more on the site to to handle that. You want a single pathologist or a couple of pathologists named on the study versus you need MRIs. The site doesn't have an MRI, but it's got all the other pieces. So they'll figure out how to get an MRI. Is that a fair characterization? That's fair. The longer the site selection takes, and sometimes it does take long. We've found out that some of your startup personnel change with the CRO. Some of your startup personnel on the site side change. So you really do have to communicate. And that's us as well. And we try to do that uh, from the site's perspective as well, knowing who they might have that we need to contact so we can be most efficient and we don't bother them unnecessarily. I mean, I I think that's probably just a big piece in and of itself is understanding who to talk to about what, when. Moving a little bit further down and, and discussing less about what parts of the process are challenging, but more what you look for when you're validating a site. Um, Linda, what would you recommend that sponsors or CROs look for in a clinical site 
either right off the bat or after the feasibility questionnaire, before all the contracts are signed, before final decisions are made? So what I'm typically looking for is a team that has the necessary time, as well as experience and expertise, as well as the location, as I mentioned previously, where the particular disease state might have the highest prevalence so that the site can be successful in their enrollment. And then uh, do they have the right equipment and facilities? So I'm going to you know, look for that. And if they don't, is that something that they could easily obtain? And Julie, same kind of question to you. What should sites look for in new studies? Do you look at your patient population locally and see the prevalence of the, the type of clinical, fe- clinical phenotype that you're looking for? And what else? I'm, I'm sure you look for more. So what else do you look for? Absolutely. Uh, one of the first things we will ask ourselves or ask a, an identified team is, does the research answer an important question? And we would like to find out if the community will support the research as far as the benefits and the risk ratio is concerned. Does the research meet an unmet need? Sometimes it may be a very low enrolling study, but it's, it's a very important need for the area. We also, as a site, are trying to get centers of excellence for stroke care, transplant care, trauma. So these are different studies that we look for. We are a teaching hospital, so we know that residents and medical students need research, so we look for different research for them. We will look to see if there's competing studies. Am I going to be trying to look at the same demographic and match the same inclusion-exclusion criteria? We also have research champions in different areas. So we have cardiology, infectious disease, women's health, different uh, research champions who we can take the study to. They can look at it and help us evaluate. You and I talked before about having a protocol complexity tool. So we have a way to quantify the actual workload and sign the protocols based on acuity-based workload. So that's very helpful for the site too. I don't think as often the CRO really thinks about whether the community will support the research or if the research is important for the community. That's a different aspect. Linda, do you, do you, does that go into the calculus on the, the sponsor side often? It's starting to now. Before, you know, I've had a lot of years in this industry. So before we didn't really think like that. But I think because we've been working with sites more directly and trying to be more partners throughout time, things have kind of adjusted a little bit. And myself, I do start to look at that now, whereas before we never really did look at it. Does a site ever leverage research champions, residents' interests, or just a need within the demography in the area to go and find studies? Do you seek studies based on those interests and needs? We have. We have gone to clinicaltrials.gov if we're looking at a new device or the doctors are doing mitral clip or a watchman or a valve of some kind. And they'll go out onto clinicaltrials.gov and, and say, see what you can find for me. We'll, we'll do some things like that. Or they have a colleague who's working on a study that they'll reach out to. So we do seek trials as well. More globally, how do the site staff facilitate site selection and qualification? I'll let you take that, Linda. On the site side, I sit and wait for you. (laughs) And you know, what's interesting though, um, we do have sites who reach out to us, at least, you know, at Global. I I have some sites that that actually reach out to us um, because they're interested in, in, you know, particular areas of research. And I think that's becoming a little bit more 
of a practice than it ever used to be. I think like Julie said, I think before we always went to the sites, but now it's becoming more of a partnership, as I mentioned earlier. And I like to see that because that helps both of us to be more efficient. And also when sites reach out to me, I do a feasibility on them right away in, you know, a kind of a general feasibility. So then I put all their information into my sheet. And then whenever I get something in a particular therapeutic area or an area that I know that they would be a good site for, I'll reach out to them. They'll be one of the first sites I reach out to and give a phone call and ask about their interest. Julie, do you have anything to add on how the site itself can speed up qualification? Feel free to get into your workload acuity estimator tool. I think after working with enough CROs and understanding what they need, you just learn to provide the information before they ask. It's sort of like any good relationship. You know what they need and you are just you just provide it to them and things go a lot smoother. They know that you're there to succeed, make the study work at your site. It's all about relationship building. Some of these studies are 10 years long, so you're really developing a long-term relationship and that's all about managing your expectations and delivering on promises, meet each other's needs. So I think you just have to go into this knowing that you're a partnership and you're there to make the study succeed. And it's to succeed, not for you, but to bring research to the community and to answer some really important questions. And as far as the protocol complexity tool, that came out of a very specific need. A lot of times researchers move on to different jobs or they it's not exactly what they thought it was going to be so they leave a site and I was the coordinator left back and I had about 14 different studies so as we got new people on and we were trying to determine how to assign these I actually went online and I did a literature review on protocol complexities most of it was about oncology studies but we formulated this tool to look at a study based on how difficult the therapeutic area is, how many central labs, the time it takes to consent, whether there were special tools like Apache scoring, SOFA scoring, all these different advanced assessments that have to take place. If it was 24-7, if they had to be randomized within a, a short time of consent, and we came up with a way to quantify these studies and then assign them to the coordinators. So it really did even out the workload. And I know people feel like they're working really hard and they're extremely busy. But this was a way to prove everyone was working hard and we could make sure that it was a very even workload. So I don't think there's any reason to go into it in more detail because it's definitely available online. You can do Google searches of protocol complexity and find a lot of information. And we did tie it into an Excel spreadsheet so that if you have a very complex study, but you're not enrolling, that you can show that the enrollment is very low versus you could have a lower complexity study that's enrolling 100 people. So these two coordinators are basically just as busy, or maybe the one with the lower protocol complexity is busier than you are. It's, it's very fair. There are so many industries which are governed by performance indicators and real-time metrics of both productivity and, you know, quote unquote, busyness, for lack of a better term, or how much 
is on someone's plate. There's a lot, I think, a lot of efficiency to be gained by this. Do you think that it's possible for a sponsor or a CRO to implement a tool like this to monitor sites, busyness, and even down to individual investigators or site staff within a site for an entire, say, 20 center study, which would be large. I assume that you can. Um, it would be difficult. Linda, that's yours. Yes, I was just going to chime in. I was going to say, you know, because of the return on investment of time uh, to do something like this, I would lean on the sites to tell me how busy they are. And of course, there's other ways we can tell, you know, and we can adjust as needed, depending on how busy they are. So they might not be able to enroll as many as many subjects as another site or whatever. So we would adjust our expectations based off of how busy they are, how many other protocols they have going on. And we, we look at that anyways, when we're selecting sites, we look at, you know, how, how much we think they can enroll and we kind of adjust our expectations just based off of the knowledge the site provides to us. Julie, I have a, a follow-up question. It's one thing from the CRO to have a study and to manage timelines for sites. It's a completely different animal for a site to manage timelines for multiple studies. Do you have any advice for those out there who are juggling, you know, more than a couple of studies on how to manage timelines? And then do you have suggestions for handling deadlines when they creep up? For example, if you're managing 14 studies after your PI left, right, which you may know about that situation, <laughs> do you have any recommendations for somebody in that boat or a site in general? I know one thing that really helps us is having a clinical trial management system. And I know there are a lot of different ones out there that shall remain unnamed, but they are very helpful in knowing when you have your first touch of a study and when you submit a feasibility questionnaire and they will, you can print reports out to see how long it's taken you to go to the IRB. We think we pretty much individually as coordinators just try to do our best and realize that it's important to get the study from feasibility into the IRB as quickly as possible. And we've arbitrarily given ourselves like an eight to 10 week timeline, which I know sounds long, but we have to have studies at the, our, our local IRB a month before they're reviewed so they can look at everything before they take it to the board. So it really gives us about six weeks to work on it. And that's, that's a short timeline for some studies. But clinical trial management systems do help. And, and it, it also provides metrics so you can see how well you're doing. So beyond using a clinical trial management system or CTMS to help automate some of the tracking, it's just kind of intuitive timeline planning and understanding intuitively where you are and what needs to be done when. Yes. And things, of course, have changed recently with COVID. We were working on quite a few studies and all of a sudden we, everything stopped and we were getting a lot of studies in and those became the priority and those are being turned around in a short amount of time. So yeah, things, things change rapidly. How can the CRO or sponsor help this process? I'm sure some of them drive you absolutely wild. Julie, what are your recommendations? What would you say to those? I wish you would stop doing this or start doing this. When I first started research 10 years ago, I actually noticed that there was an adversarial role in the office between the 
CRCs and the CROs. And I, I didn't quite understand it, but it was, it was evident. And I quickly learned that the CRO was my best friend and she, she, he is going to help me succeed. And a lot of them would take the time and teach why do I need this document? And it's very important for CROs and sponsors to have checklists. And I have a lot of people that will send me a checklist that will say 1572 CV medical license, et cetera, et cetera, for the PI and the sub I they'll ask for lab certificates. So you have everything right in front of you. So you know exactly what they expect. And we save everything in a shared drive in, in our clinical trials office. So we can pull these documents out and send them immediately. So we have, um, E-reg binders, we upload things into E-reg binders. We give access to the sponsors so they can look into our documents immediately. There's a lot of efficiencies that we have built in. Julie, to summarize kind of what you, what you just said, you said it's important for the CRO to teach the site and inform them on what each piece or why they need certain things or how pieces are going to come together. And I think that's important because once you get into the same type of problem again, or you need a similar type of document process approval, if they don't, if the site doesn't understand, you're going to have to start the whole process again, the whole clarification process from the CRO side. So that, that'll save time for the CRO. And also, if they have checklists which outline information, that's fantastic. You then transitioned, your, your next tip after that was basically having all of your documents together in a place where you can quickly furnish these for the CRO and then having having good e-binders, having good organizational standards and, and documentation. Is there anything specifically on the CRO side that they can do to prepare for when you start that six-week timeline from essentially selection and feasibility to having all of the documentation into the IRB? Is there anything that you found in the past that CROs are slow to or fail to provide or furnish or are there things that the CRO does inadvertently, which slow down this process? So it makes that six-week timeline really stressful. The only thing that came to mind is if you think you've turned in all the documents that a CRO is looking for, and then they'll come back and say, oh, but I need this, or oh, but I need this one more thing. So it goes right back to being organized and having checklists. We all make mistakes, so a site could do the same thing. And for me, it's just really important to have a relationship. It's important to get the email that says, I really appreciate your fast turnaround time, kind regards. Those just very pleasant emails that let you know that you guys are working together and both of you appreciate each other's efforts. It's important to have good rapport and to build rapport from the jump and to also be organized on the, the CRO side. And Linda, Quick follow-up on the follow-up. That can be, I imagine, very difficult for the CRO or sponsor because you are in parallel during site selection, writing the protocol, coming up with a consent form, coming, finalizing inclusion and exclusion criteria, doing power calculations for sample sizes. And what if that PI on the sponsor side says, man, I'd love to look at this metric four weeks into the IRB vetting process. I, how, how do you, as the CRO or the sponsor, how do you 
avoid, for lack of a better term, change orders or surprises? And how, what recommendations do you have for having your ducks in a row for this site? Uh, that's a really good question, Jamie. And as uh, Julie talked about, having checklists, we too internally have checklists. And so that's how we try to stay organized. We also have our processes that we follow. We try to make those as streamlined as possible with, you know, areas where we can, you know, have reminders. And we do teach, as Julie mentioned previously, having that great relationship with your sites. And of course, we're usually looking at a lot of sites at the same time. So having that relationship in, with a lot of different sites, it takes a lot of organization. But also, too, we stress that we are kind of that different CRO where we try to be as pleasant as we can. We try to teach. We try to be organized. But at the same time, you know, all these processes, they take a long time. They take a lot of effort, depending on how many different studies we might be working on at the same time. You've got just a lot of things going on, just like the site does. So if you can really work with one another, be as pleasant as possible, knowing that you're together as a team, you're all working towards that same goal. I think that really does help. Anytime that if I don't, we don't receive something, we send a pleasant reminder because like myself, sometimes I might just not even realize that I haven't, I haven't stayed on top of absolutely everything. And if somebody sends me a quick reminder, I am so grateful. And I think the sites are the same way. They just, if we've missed something, we've missed it. And just, you know, quickly, you know, say, hey, you know, we missed this. You know, can you get this over to me, you know, at your earliest convenience? Knowing that they've got other things going on, you have to be patient, you have to be pleasant. And, and I really like to, to, for them to understand, too, that we're, we're together as a team because any, everyone can get overwhelmed in this industry. There's just so much going on at any given time. And if you recognize that any time there becomes overwhelm for either party, it can hinder the process. So try to, trying to help each other, trying to give each other a leg up at any given time, I think, you know, it becomes more of a team dynamic. And when you have that in place, that really, as you said, that really just changes the, the dynamic and it helps you to be more efficient on all sides. So taking a kind of an opposite look at this, at this question, say the site is a bit overwhelmed or is not as responsive as you'd like them to be from the CRO or sponsor side. How can the CRO or sponsor motivate the site to get going or to move things along? For example, say you've got, you need eight sites, seven are through IRB and enrolling, and you've got one that's on the fence and still waiting for IRB review. How can you push them without destroying the rapport? Well, you know, you definitely have to understand from their perspective what's going on. Because like you said, they could, you know, it could be something out of their control. There's really nothing that they can do. Just do your best to help them through that process. Be as kind and as gentle as you can, but also, you know, like constant reminders or, you know, maybe picking up the phone and, and just calling one evening, you know, after they're finished with all their patients. So you're not getting in their way, trying to be as respectful as you possibly can and finding out what you can do to maybe help them out. There may be something that we could do on our end to take over something that maybe help with a process that, you know, they otherwise would maybe handle, but maybe we can step in and handle a little bit of something for them. And when we do stuff like that, it really goes a long way with building that relationship for sure. Julie, anything to add? One of my thoughts was perhaps the site really did not do an honest assessment of their ability to manage the study. 
And, and sometimes that happens. You have to know when to say no. By the time you get to the IRB or when you're preparing for IRB submission, that's a little bit too late. You, you should have figured that out beforehand, but I'm wondering if they've gotten there and it was really just a little bit more overwhelming and then they need to reach out and have conversations with the sponsors and CRO. Thank you for listening to this episode of Chasing Compliance. If you're interested in learning more about site selection, please stay tuned for part two, which will be released later this week. In that episode, Linda and Julie share best practices for site selection, and we explore several topics surrounding site selection in more detail. If you have any further questions regarding the topics discussed on today's show, or would like to get in touch with us, please contact us at our website, www.globalrwc.com. There you can find more information regarding our approach to solving a variety of regulatory and clinical challenges. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe, leave a review, or share this with your colleagues. You can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or any other app you're listening on. Until next time, we wish you continued compliance.